everyone. Welcome to the Good Tech Fest podcast. My name is Genevieve Smith, and I'm so excited to be guest hosting this episode. I help social impact organizations align their data and data practices to their missions. Nothing is neutral. The way we understand and interact with our data will always reflect some set of values. It takes intentional work to make sure that they're the values that support our missions. We have a very special episode for you today, very related to that intentional work that makes sure that our values and our data are lining up. We'll be playing the first half of a panel I hosted for Good Tech Fest last year on decolonizing data and tech for good. The second half is coming next week. We hope you enjoy. Thank you for being here, everyone, my my pals on, on this panel and everybody participating or viewing the recording later. I'm Genevieve. I work with INGOs, foundations, community-based organizations to align their data practices with their mission. That looks like coming from a space of nothing is neutral. We, every single thing we do from walking down the street to getting groceries, to the way we're behaving in this panel, to the way we are governing our data, the way we are collecting data, and we'll talk about this later, are they actually our data to collect? All of these things are a reflection of our mission or not. And the way we move through the world could be reflecting a lot of values that we wouldn't say are ours, but are perpetuating harm and upholding oppressive systems. So that's what I do. I'm obsessed with frameworks. I am a white female presenting person, which is why I love frameworks. I love asking questions. I am not in a position to lead on any of this work, but I can be a helpful partner in learning and a lot of unlearning. And while we were looking at how to you know, talk about this panel, I certainly have misgivings about even calling it decolonizing data, because can you? All of these are colonial systems. And so, yes, this is a conversation about decolonization and <sighs> taking apart, dismantling oppressive systems, uh, but wanting to name that it's far more nuanced. And this session is not going to give you five steps to decolonize your data, because you can't. You're in colonial systems. Uh, so hello, welcome. Um, and this is going to be a very flowy conversation. Uh, we will, I will try to give us 20, 15 to 20 minutes of Q&A at the end. And with that, I would love for the panelists to introduce yourself, what your work is, and, and also how you're feeling right now in your body about this conversation and this work. Take it away. I will go ahead and get us started, um, only because of alphabetical, right? My last name is Barreto, Denise Barreto, and I am coming to you um, from sunny Chicago. Um, who I am, wow. Um, I am a force of nature. Literally, I am alive every day to ensure that this country that I live in lives up to its promise of liberty and justice for all. I do that in a number of roles and a number of ways, but I, I like to describe myself as sitting at the intersection of, you know, private sector, government, philanthropy, and, and understanding that we live in surround sound. So one, one of the ways that you might know me because you've seen uh, the, the promotions for this is I am the inaugural director of equity and inclusion for the second largest county in the United States, Cook County, Illinois, where um, Chicago resides. 
that's one role. I also am the principal of Relationships Matter Now, which is um, a, a consulting firm that helps organizations get from where they are to where they want to be, usually centering around strategic planning, org development, leader development. And you don't get to be a Black Gen X woman without people asking you to do DEI when you walk in a room. So that, and then finally, um, I'm also the co-founder of Cercat Productions, and we believe um, that because we live in surround sound, all the great policy work that I do all day gets negated when you go home and you stream some BS on Hulu that perpetuates stereotypes. And so I'm going to Hollywood as well. I have a show running on PBS right now, pitching shows to Food Network. I've got bunch of scripted and unscripted things in development. And I just never sleep and I'm feeling amazing and, and so excited to be here with you. Well, hello everyone. I'll jump in now because uh, I'm next in alphabetical order, I think. Check my um, grammar again. Um, so my name is Darren Clinch. I'm currently the Indigenous Data um, uh, the oh, sorry data analytics coordinator for the Indigenous Data Network, um, and I'm based at the School of um, Population Global Health down here in uh, the University of Melbourne. Currently in lockdown for our 209th day, I think collectively, not um, in a row. Thank goodness. Um, and uh, look, I, I've been on a pretty long journey when it comes to data and information and, and qualitative, quantitative stuff um, in that I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool data analyst. I'm, I've gone to the source. I've gone to, into government and worked in government for nine and a half years because here in Australia, in our context, um, the power and narrative related to Aboriginal people that's projected around the world and internally in this country has been controlled for you know, the 200 years that we've had um, non-Aboriginal people in this country. Um, and so we, we're really in the struggle to take back the, the, the power from that narrative. Um, and so we've had a big, huge discussion over the last four or five years about Indigenous data sovereignty. Um, we've tried to make sure the word governance comes into that conversation because it's one thing to rebuild the sovereign identity of, you know, distinct groups and you know, I'll have people say to me, what do you prefer, Aboriginal or Indigenous? And I'll say, uh, actually, they're your words, so you can group us into one homogenous group. I'm Buddy Meyer from Yamaji country, um, and many people around the world would not even know how many distinct cultural and linguistic groups there were before Europeans came to Australia. So, um, and I, I use my storytelling, um, and I combine that with my technical skills to engage people in this conversation to say, okay, it's great for our National Data Commission to have all their um, FAIR principles, but FAIR is just FAIR principles for us as Aboriginal people. It's just another opportunity for outsiders to pick and choose the, the information and the richness of our cultural context within um, data and information that, that you know, suits them. So um, it's my um, life goal now to see lots and lots more Aboriginal people enter into the STEM um, area. So then we stop becoming just advisors and we become actions. And that's with the robust data at our fingertips. So that's me. Well, greetings, everyone. I'm next in the alphabetical order category. 
Um, I am sitting in Big Sky Country, otherwise known as Montana. Uh, I'm the CEO at the Headwaters Foundation, which is a relatively newish health conversion foundation working in Western Montana. And I come to you as someone that has been working in the field of philanthropy for over 20 years. And 16 of those years were in roles where I was part of a um, approach in philanthropy to collect data, use data, manipulate data um, that felt uh, wrong to me. And I got an opportunity to come to Montana and say, we've got to do this differently. And we have been, I describe it as reinventing philanthropy at Headwaters and really rethinking uh, what's our role? How do we seed power? How do we center equity? And how do we allow communities um, to self-determine um, and, and tell their stories about what's happening as opposed to utilizing data? Um, so I'm excited about this conversation. I think we've got a wonderful uh, panel here and uh, it will be interesting uh, to see where this goes. Uh, kia ora everybody. Um, in my language, that means hi to all and welcome. Um, I love that statement, Genevieve, nothing's neutral. I really love that. I feel that. Um, could I begin by acknowledging all the people on this panel and all your ancestors, past and present, your future generations? And can I extend that um, greeting uh, to all the First Nations people on the lands which we stand? Um, and I'll just say again, reiterate Māori in my language. Greetings to you all. Um, just on me, I, um, like Darren and others, I think all of us went in to be Jedi Knights within the system and to try and change it. Ended up being more of a ninja because um, that's actually how you get things done. Um, now I'm consulting, but I've worked in government most of my life for places like the Treasury Department, which controls all the money. I thought if I got to understand that, I could get more money to our community. Um, I got taught a, a sharp lesson about that. Um, worked for the statistics department and did a survey on Indigenous people. Really proud of that work. But as I said the other day, <clears throat> the best thing that happened to us was people thought we were going to disappear and not happen. And uh, when we got over the line, um, it was more by mistake or accidental than anything else. Um, and I think uh, worked for the Social Well Wellbeing Agency, which, you know, talked about predictive analytics. But I think like all of us know, um, the challenge in this space is um, somebody else is framing our reality. Somebody else is telling us what counts. Um, lots of things that are important to our people and to our communities are invisible to the eye and very difficult to count. And um, I think for me, you know, listening to the amazing people, I've had a chat with you guys before, um, being inspired by um, just leaders out there. I think things like recentering, reframing, um, advocating, uh, building strong alliances with communities like ours, but they will not be the same. Uh, those are the types of things I'm really interested in. And I think, um, you know, it's that, it's that balancing act between you're going to have to build some things outside the system. There's probably more benefit and um, you feel stronger, but ultimately our people are subjected to the system. So we still need to have people in there. So just happy to be here. Um, yeah, kia ora koutou. Thank you all. So before we jump in, I wanna name 
something. I've been working in the data for social good space for the last 10 years or so. And whenever, in my experience, whenever we've started to talk about equity or talk about dismantling oppressive systems, all the panels I've been to have been folks talking about what tool can we build? What new code can we write? That's valuable and it's important in certain areas. It's also very white. It's also very much a colonizer behavior to say, oh, here's a problem. Let me build something that's proprietary to fix it. So I still hold the power. So if you came to this conversation hoping to have a conversation about AI, it's not what we're doing today, but please stay because the tech and the data are so, so, so entrenched in the human pieces of this. So we're gonna start with some historical context. And this is something that we could spend our entire careers talking about and longer. Um, but there's such a richness in this panel in terms of where people are coming from and motivations and experiences and lived experiences, both now and speaking ancestrally. So I would love for us to go around and y'all are so organized, really our data people going by alphabetical order. Uh, so whether it's alphabetical order or popcorn, whatever, uh, I would love for us to talk about sort of the historical context of specifically some of the work you're doing in the areas that you're doing that work, because that is a huge missing piece in a lot of the data and tech work that we do. Who's it going to be? So I'll jump in. I'll get us started. Um, I think for me, one of the things that I've realized uh, being a student of history is that the field of philanthropy um, was created and built by bankers, lawyers, and academics, um, all who are guided by white dominant structures. And as those foundations in the early, uh, actually it was early 1800s, um, were being created, all of those infrastructures that were white dominant, white male uh, developed, became the standard of how foundations operate. And over the course of the last 200 years, as new foundations have come into being in, in the United States, we've built on that model. And we continue to use um, those models and their approaches that are very centered in control and power, um, very much uh, encouraging or uh, uh, allowing uh, people with resources that tended to be white males um, to control who got access to these resources. Um, and we've built everything around that paradigm, right? The way we do our grant making, the way we collect our data, the way we communicate about the work, the way we treat communities that we are here to serve. Um, and that's important to understand because if you look at where we are today, we still have from a BIPOC perspective, all of the same social challenges and problems that have been existing for generation after generation after generation. And so you, you have to ask yourself, if we're not making progress on these things, why are we continuing to do the same thing over and over and over again? Um, and so that's, that's something that I think we have to, in whatever field you are in, really stop and think about why are we doing things the way we are doing them? What was the power structure that created this approach? 
And can there be different ways to really do our work in more equitable manners? And when we engage in those kinds of conversations and we think outside the box of those white dominant structures, we might begin to put in place some very different ways to really see power to communities that we are, we are here to serve. So that for me is just the historical context from philanthropy that we at Headwaters have really been pushing against. And I, I'm sure you've all figured it out. I'm the least data person around this whole thing too. Um, I'm the storyteller. I'm the, I'm the marketer and I'm the person that often gets told to look at data before I can do anything, right? And I, I um, do a lot of work that, that centers around, you know, data, especially telling you I'm in a county setting, right? We can't do anything around anything here without like the data point. And one of the things that I would like to bring up about the historical part of it is it really just echoes what Brenda said, so it won't be very long. How you do anything is how you do everything. I am known for that every, in every environment that I speak in. I help people understand that um, when people want to talk about data or talk about what they're doing and they want to separate it from our systems or separate it from white supremacy or these dominant culture influences, um, you're just you're doing yourself a disservice, right? And I think about, you know, what comes to mind is the example I looked up last night, which was, I was thinking about like, you know, where did this stuff start? And a lot of times it's all rooted in, as Brenda said, um, you know, white males set up things and then they were, you know, dominant European background white males. And then it's, you know, hey, that's the way that we're doing it. And in one of the things that we all reference related to, to psychology and anthropology, you know, you think about Maslow and, and, and what I was reading about specifically in preparation for today is that's a very perfect example of he comes up with this hierarchy of needs and he comes up with it from observing what the Blackfoot people um, were doing. That was buried and hidden from us for so long and he got it fucking wrong, right? Because he made it all about individuals when if he had actually translated what he saw, he would have brought the community part was more important than the self-actualization. So I, I and, and one last thing is our language. I am in a county where people talk about all the time, you know what, historically, what we'll say disinvested communities, we'll say um, underserved, under-resourced. And I'm like, that's all basically a cover and that's a distancing government is responsible for a lot of these inequities and it's our responsibility to undo them and as part of that we need to name it so just the meeting i was in before this when someone said disadvantaged communities i said i'm gonna ask you to change that to historically excluded right because then we don't get to distance ourselves from the damage Okay. Um, I mean, history, colonization in Aotearoa, New Zealand, it was really a process of, um, you know, land grab, um, overwhelming us with numbers, um, devaluing our language, our culture, our values. Um, you know, bringing technology. I mean, the thing about technology we all know is that it's just new stuff, yeah? It's what we do with that stuff. It makes the difference. So uh, one thing about 
my dad's tribe, Native Pro Nation, adapters, you know, kind of um, face the world on their terms. Um, my mother's tribe's lot, a lot more subdued. So people say Atafai has two personalities. He's very gregarious like his father and can be quite introverted like his mother's side. So um, these are the things I try to balance. Um, but I think when I look back at history and I look at the responses to that, uh, we have had people who have tried to take on the system, work within the system. We have famous grandfathers, great-grandfathers who did that. Um, and the truth is they lived in a time where they had to accept their names being mispronounced, rubbished, them having to change their names to anglicized versions to be accepted. So um, we had one great-grandfather who, you know, my my own grandfather went to war, World War II, won a military cross. But all of my father's generation, his grandfathers and uncles went to war to prove to New Zealanders that we were worthy of citizenship. And that's a narrative that we have in our community. And I'm like, in 2021, I'm like, are we for real? Like nobody would accept that. Sorry, amongst my young woke children who remind me every day, you know, that, you know, dad, you've got to step up, you've got to step up. Um, I think all of us, uh, in terms of our histories, um, we try to engage with the system. This is why I use the term Jedis. We do need our warrior princesses and princes and kings and queens to have a go because that's where the resources that impacts upon us. Uh, we need to learn the technology. That's all good but we would be foolish to think that the answers all lie there. So we've got to go back to our communities. Um, Darren said something the other day about GIS using mapping. That's something we're trying to do in my little village, decolonize our maps. We couldn't do that without dark GIS and story maps um, and retelling our stories. So it's how do we use that technology for our advantage? If I think, um, the things that I've seen that have made the most difference are those things that do not happen within the system. They develop strongly outside of it. They look to the system for resource and support, but they are uncompromising in terms of, you know, what's important for that community, for those people, for that village. And I think recentering ourselves, reclaiming our worldview, reframing our paradigm and reality, amplifying our voices and spotlighting our strengths, not our weaknesses, those kind of things that elevate us. The other thing I'd say, and this just goes back to brothers and sisters who are here, how do we listen and stand up besides our brothers and sisters whose voices are also marginalized? Because, you know, we're all in a fight to um, save our environment, um, to stop this consumerism that just is eating the world and the earth. And um, with respect to all the clever people who are economists and statisticians, we've done a shit job at looking after our environment. And uh, all those people were telling us apparently what was good. So I think it's timely for all of our voices to be heard. And I am thankful that I've been invited to this conversation. Kia ora, everybody. Okay, well, um, thanks for that bit of a segue there. Um, you know, 
So, because uh, I, I think a lot about GIS and a lot about maps because that's how we place ourselves not just within space but within time. Um, and I think, um, you know, the point that you're making about uh, GIS is also GIS has played a very large historical role in wiping away a lot of um, acknowledgement of place by, you know, Indigenous and traditional people. Um, and, you know, the classic example would be the way that this country reacted when they were told, okay, you can't climb on top of that big giant rock that is, you know, the most recognisable um, natural feature of this country. Um, and just even the, the recognition that it's called Uluru. It's not called after some old dead white dude. Um, but cartography, even if you were to show someone a map of the earth and you turn it upside down, they automatically think it's upside down because Europe is placed on the top. So, you know, the Mercator map. And you think about the, the, the historical influence by that when they go somewhere and they go, no, we've got to put a recognisable place name that Western European people can pronounce that name in the first place, you know. And if you've ever come to Australia and you'll see some of the names and some of the traditional names and the, the variety of those names, it goes against that image that white people came here and saved the poor, you know, um, dying race of Aboriginal people just wasn't true. So I think going back through history and looking at those key points where certain mechanisms were used to reinforce the dominant culture from Europe and it didn't honour you know, Aboriginal people, um, we've lost so much knowledge and information about ecological sustainability. We can see as Aboriginal people the damage that's been done to this country, as you could probably see in other areas, not just by, you know, non-Aboriginal people, but by consumerism, like you're pointing out. Um, so I think there's a lot of historical lessons that we could learn, and that has generated into data. And I'm working on a fairly big project that looks to um, re-establish traditional place names for the places that we are. So I'm currently here in Melbourne, which is referred to as um, Nam, and I'm on the lands of the Rwandri people who are part of the Kulin Nation. Um, and the amount of nations across this country, most people go, <gasps> they're so surprised and go, mob, don't blame us. That's you, mob, who kept the data and produced the maps. And, you know, you can't go to Google Maps and go, show me how to get from Wurundjeri country to Ghana country. And it tells you all the countries you've, you know, you've got to go past the Jabarung people on the way, you know, and the Nodinjiri people on the way. None of that. They've got signs on the side of the road, but none of that's transferred into data that can then be used with, you know, you can have an API call to a mapping function that says, you click on the little drop and go, well, let's get rid of the European names and let's add the traditional names that have been used for tens of thousands of years. So I think there's a lot of historical context and, you know, my talk will be a little bit about mapping because I'm a map nerd. And that's part one. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the first half of the discussion. Please join us next week for part two.